Welcome to the TNT EdTech Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Noons. Today we have with us Dr. Monica Burns. You can find her on Twitter at Class Tech Tips and also on her website at www.classtechtips.com. So excited to have Monica on the show today. She's an educator, author, speaker, and ed tech consultant. And without further ado, let's get right into it. Welcome. Thank you so much for being on today. Thank you so much for having How long have you been teaching for or in education total? So I taught fifth grade for just shy of seven years, and I've been out of the classroom now working with teachers, uh, instructional coaches, writing and blogging and traveling all around for about five years now. Wow, congrats. That's a pretty impressive endeavor there. And I was reading on your About Me page, you've been to three continents. Which ones have you been to? Gosh, yeah. So I've presented in Australia at EduTech uh, in Brisbane, Australia a few years ago. I've had the chance to present in Amsterdam and Barcelona, as well as here in North America in both Mexico and the United States. Wow, that's amazing. What's your favorite part of educational technology? Like, why are you so fascinated like myself with educational technology? Gosh, well, there's just so many wonderful things when it comes to opening up possibilities for students, which of course is a pretty wide, big thing to say. But I think for me as a classroom teacher, my big, oh my goodness moment of this is really going to change things had to do with voice recording. So this is pre-Flipgrid and pre-all the excitement about student voice, really just getting kids to do some simple screencasts to help show what they know when solving a math problem. I realized that my students who, if I said, let's explain what we just did in a paragraph or in a couple sentences, you know, during the afternoon, the math part of the day, that was really, you know, a discouraging for them as they were building their capacity to write in English, which was the instructional language, you know, I was focused on in New York. So for my students, especially those English language learners, they were ready to talk about their math experience. They could show off what they did. But if it was a writing situation, it became a roadblock. Not to say that we were tossing it aside, but having the voice component for them to show what they know really built confidence, had them using math vocabulary in conversations, and it really helped bridge the gap into the times where we did, you know, pause to write a paragraph or a couple sentences to explain our thinking in the math classroom. Oh, that sounds great. Over here in California, we also have a larger EL population. What kind of general pro tip or pro tips would you offer to the listeners about how to best engage those types of learners in our classrooms? Whether you're talking specifically about English language learners or students of really any background, I think it's so important to make sure that the content we're teaching, the topics we're sharing, the examples we're giving are as relevant as possible so that kids can make connections to what they see and experience and love every day and that they can think a bit 
about how the content, whether it's something that might feel a little dry if they're reading it in a history book, is connected to their everyday lives. So I was having a conversation, actually, I was presenting at the ASCD Leadership Conference in Maryland just a few days ago, and my session happened to be more about school storytelling and branding from an admin perspective. But one thing that came up was TikTok and TikTok videos. (laughs) And you know, I joked with the group and said, you know, I'm not encouraging every school to set up their own TikTok channel necessarily, right? But even if we're thinking about something as simple as how are kids showing what they know, well, maybe using another non-TikTok-y tool <laughs> to capture their thinking in 60 seconds or less or with music and without their words or something that connects to even a platform they're excited about can help bring in some connections to what you know we're looking at from a content perspective. And I think there's ways to do this without being gimmicky or gotcha or flashy or something like that, that sometimes it's easy to fall into that trap. We can be strategic about those decisions and make sure the quality is there as well. You know, I love that idea, especially um, going with what's current, what's applicable. Uh, Just recently, I think within the last couple of weeks, I saw Matt Miller post a TikTok-like template for teachers to use where you're not actually using the program, but students are engaging with material and sharing out in that sort of fashion. And I could totally see my own students in the English classroom getting into that. I have some TikTok stars, I guess, in the classroom. (laughs) So that is definitely something um, they'd be into. So thanks for that, that tip there. That's great. And I liked how you made it about uh, the classroom and the teaching and the content and not so much on something temporal, like a tool that can evolve and possibly even go away. Right. You know, there's so many things that I think back to that just a few years ago were not anything I spent time on, didn't have a word for, didn't know would exist, right? When it comes to the types of platforms creators of any age are using or leveraging. And I was at the Adobe Max industry conference just last week in California, actually. And it was a wonderful event. I've done some work with the Adobe team and was brought in as an insider this year to participate and see all the things that were going on. And one of the things that really resonated with me there, whether they're talking about uh, Premiere Rush, which is kind of like an iMovie type of tool, or Spark Video, or Spark Page, or Spark Post, which are tools that I'm very familiar with and have used with kids of all ages, is that it's really that open-ended thing. It's not a book trailer tool. It's not a tool to make TikTok videos, although I did it last week (laughs) to try it out myself with Premiere Rush, and it was super doable. Um, actually, so felt very proud of my, you know, of my high school kind of connection right then. But this option to, you know, not just make a book trailer, not just do a science lab report. Yes, you could do those things, but it's not designed for a plug and play in that way. It's really about an educator in whatever their role might be, making a decision on what students need in order to access content, engage with material, and then figure out which tool in their tool belt is going to get the job done. Oh, I love it. And Adobe's a great company. I'm a former graphic designer and have been using their suite for many, many, many years, nice. actually, since I was a teen. Uh, I got hooked on Photoshop when I was about 15 and have been using their products ever since. And 
Um, so I'm glad you bring that up. And I'm not so well versed with Premiere Rush, but I use Adobe Spark a ton. So I was super excited to see that you and Ben Forta came up with 40 ways to inject creativity in your classroom with Adobe Spark. Yeah, it was such a fun project. And Ben is just wonderful. And I've got a chance to work with his team for a couple years now. And so when we had this opportunity to put together the activities related to using the Spark tools, they're really ones that you can tailor to different groups of students, different subject areas, different grade levels. We, of course, put some standards connections and some grade level suggestions and kind of step-by-steps for each of the 40 ways in the book. And we put graphic organizers in the back of the book, too, so that you could tailor them to the groups of students that you're working with. But it really is that open-ended creation tool. And aspect of saying, choose your own adventure, here's some guidelines and support, here's a lot of direction, or here's a little bit of direction. And maybe students are choosing between video or between page when they're talking about what they want to do, or they might create a couple things in post and plug it into a video or plug it into a page. It's just so dynamic. And this past summer, I had the chance to run some programming or lead some workshops, I should say, for elementary, middle, and high school students. And it was really neat seeing how six, seven, and eight-year-olds were using these tools in one way, and high school students were using it in another way. So just the ability to give students a space to share what they've learned or what they're excited about or convince an audience to do something, the possibilities are, are really endless. And Given your experience, even if it's not everyday experience anymore with their suite of tools, I definitely would suggest checking out Premiere Rush. I am, you know, very happy in my little spark <laughs> bubble uh, <laughs> that I'm normally in, but I really kind of made the commitment at the beginning of last week going into Adobe Max to say, I need to get more comfortable. I need to play around. I need to jump into Premiere Rush. And I'm so glad that I did um, just in the past you know, week, get over that little bit of a learning curve and say, oh, I did this, or I see why this is useful or it's just always great for me to have an understanding as well as what for what options are out there. So I might not lead a session necessarily on every tool that's out there and available, but it's good for me as someone who works with lots of schools, has conversations with educators formally or informally, you know, in workshop sessions or coaching sessions to at least point them in a direction of something that may be worth exploring a little bit further. And so I'm at that point now for sure to be able to push people and say, you know, here's a tool that might work well for you when it comes to having a better understanding of Premiere Rush. But one thing I do like, and this is that kind of TikTok connection, is that it allows you to make videos in vertical format, which is not something you see across the board in terms of ease and efficiency. So it's neat for kids to make a video in the shape that they probably, it probably resonates with them a little bit more than all of us who grew up watching widescreen televisions as as opposed to our tall, you know, vertical video that now we probably consume just as much as students do. I really like that you point out the different media types there. You're right. I definitely am inclined to watch something in widescreen, but my students, you're right. They want this long vertical video. That's what they're accustomed to. And so when they're consuming media, that's their go-to. And 
I like some of the things you had talked about a while back too about um, branding and tying that in with our students. I'm a big proponent for students branding themselves consistently. They already do it. I just try to formalize it a little bit. Where do you see branding going? Uh, You have a very strong brand yourself. What kinds of tips would you have out there for our listeners to, to help them help their students brand themselves? Yeah, that's such an important topic. And I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because it's something I think about a lot when it comes to not just the digital citizenship connection or the creativity connection or the storytelling connection, but really a combination of all of these things. And you know, kids of any age right, have a sense of what it means to have a brand or have consistency or have a viewpoint, whether they use that language or they don't. Right? We know that one of the early like pre-reading milestones is when a kid points to a logo <laughs> and they know that it's Nike or they know that it's McDonald's or they know that it's Mott's applesauce or whatever it might be. So these are things that are threaded into all of students' experiences inside and outside of the classroom. And I actually, my podcast, the Easy EdTech podcast, I did an episode a little while back earlier this year about this idea of student branding and personal branding and saying, you know, is it designing a logo? Is it having consistent colors? Is it sharing content that falls into two categories as opposed to 15 categories, right? What does this look like? How do we identify it? And is it something that we can thread into the math tutorial students make? So it has their voice and their attitude and their excitement. Or is it something that we think about when kids are creating graphics to promote something that they've made while they're making a portfolio to show off what they've created as part of a submission for a summer camp for creative writing? I mean, the possibilities are endless when we tailor to something that's relevant for students and authentic to their everyday experience. And we can absolutely be strategic with making connections to curriculum goals and to standards. I mean, this is part of visual communication, digital communication, asking for feedback, iterative process, right? Producing with digital tools, but communication and speaking and listening. I mean, we could go on and on when it comes to the connections that you see even in the Common Core standards or the ISTE standards or wherever you happen to be. I'm confident that there are connections to these pieces when we talk about helping students better communicate you know, their vision or their ideas or sharing their story. No, I, I love that. I think the encompassing of all of those types of standards and goals and objectives can really be done in student-centered learning, something like a project-based learning assignment Uh, And I do a lot of those. Those are so fun. And those are the best ones. Uh, Marlena Hebern in her book, Edu Protocol, starts off by talking about how the work students share with others aren't those worksheets. They're the interactive lessons and assignments we give out. And so I'm really having that in the back of my mind every time I design a lesson, design a unit, uh, design some kind of project or activity, and the results show. Uh, Now, I don't knock it out of the park every time. Sometimes I fail. Uh, That definitely happens. But generally, I'm learning, they're learning, and every year we're creating 
better projects and getting better results. And I feel like I'm doing a really good job of prepping my students for the real world in terms of having strong marketable skills like you shared with with branding. What other skills do you feel educators need to inject into their curriculum? One thing that's been front of mind recently, and I think about it a lot related to my own career journey, is that I spend a lot of time writing. And it's not just, yes, a book or a blog post or a podcast outline, but it's the emails, the tweets, the correspondence, the thank you notes, right? All of these pieces of communication that you know, you shift in terms of what your mission is, your audience is, the text type or the genre that you're writing, or you don't have to necessarily be a novelist to write in narrative format. And that's an area where I'm always thinking about how it can connect more cross-curricular. And sometimes it's just that idea that writing doesn't quite belong here or writing isn't a focus or a priority. You know, I wonder if there's another way we need to start framing that sort of skill. Uh, storytelling is a hard one because we can't help but think about fairy tales and once upon a time sort of language. But what does it look like to bring that you know, written communication, even if it is a starts with voice to text. What does that look like across content areas is something I've been thinking a lot about. No, that's great. I'm glad you brought that up because I myself was just talking to my mom about this yesterday saying how storytelling is really making a strong comeback. So it's really interesting. Historically, we started with oration and storytelling. I teach the Odyssey, which (laughs) was one of the first, not the first, but one of the first that we recognize. And uh, now we're seeing it again with to bring it back in tools like YouTube, TikTok, people are telling their stories with blogs, with podcasts, with um, social media. And I think you're right. You you touched on something. Uh, we need to start going back to a little bit of this narrative writing, maybe not in an extreme formal sense, but we need to prep our students for their 60 second elevator speech. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, get them ready. And that's actually an assignment I have my students do uh, third quarter, they have this big open ended project. It's one of those genius hour 20 time projects where they can pretty much do whatever they want to do. So long as they pitch it to me and show me how they're going to connect it to common core state standards and get it done in the allotted time. And if it passes, uh, they get to do it. And uh, I've just seen amazing things. Uh, One example, last year, a student raised almost $1,000 all on her own for teacher care packages and delivered them to three different sites to educators, staff, and even janitors. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. I want more of this. Yeah. And just, I love the elevator pitch connection. That's something I think about a lot when it comes to storytelling in a non-traditional format, right? Everyone, you know, needs to be able to communicate their value, what they can do and how they can 
affect change or impact something. And they need to be able to frame that in different ways, depending on who gets on the elevator with them. So giving kids the language and the practice, right? Public speaking doesn't have to be the way, you know, that I know I do a lot more of than I ever imagined, right? On front of, you know, hundreds or a couple thousand people, it has to be that one-on-one conversation too, or the small group or just getting that message across. So I really love that idea of prepping kids for this non-traditional types of communication and writing experiences. And it's been great to see the adoption of tools like Flipgrid, which help kids pause and talk and maybe be a little more concise than they might be in a more casual conversation so that they can get their message across with purpose. Right. One thing I love about Flipgrid too for the secondary level is students are so self-conscious about how they present themselves to the world. They spend so much time editing and re-engaging their message before they come up with this final product. Something that we work really hard as English teachers to get them to do in their writing, but it's so difficult uh, to do but it just comes naturally and so easily when you give them that type of product. Um, Are there any other products that you foresee educators using to leverage student choice, student voice um, to just help empower our students a little bit more? I've been really excited to see how Book Creator has transformed in the past couple of years. And I've done some work with them and been connected to their team for, for quite some time now. So I, you know, sometimes get a little bit of a behind the scenes look or I spend a little bit more time with their tools. And I've been so excited that they've gone to Chrome, which happened, you know, a bit ago. But the ability to have a voice recording, voice to text, their voice to text is really strong. I have to say that I show it off to groups all the time and I don't think I've ever had to go in and edit it, which is definitely not true when I use voice to text to send a text message to a family member. Right. So <laughs> it's really, really good. I wish everything was as strong as that in my daily voice to text interactions. But that's one, again, where you know I circle back with all of these tools that the open-ended component that teacher-led direction of where we hope to go, what kind of information I'm hoping to get with you. You know, there's formative assessment connections with that. So I'm just excited about the ability that more and more of these tools and Book Creator is an example of one, give students an option to share what they've learned in a variety of ways and even embed a Flipgrid response and they can embed a Spark video that they've published. And just those connections really give it a nice space to create, say, a portfolio or everyday journal or just something that chronicles their their learning during that time. So to shift gears a little bit, um, you know, prepping for the interview, I, I did a lot of reading of your blogs, listening to your podcast, and it seems like you're gone a bit, <laughs> uh, which is pretty cool. But it's got to be tiring. So how do you kind of unwind and uh, rejuvenate like when you come home or stop being on the road for a bit? 
Yeah, it's been a really exciting few years of being able to go to (laughs) spots all over the world. A lot of domestic travel, though. I am adding Arkansas to my list of new states tomorrow because I'm presenting at their state reading conference this week. Just a couple more left on the list. But when it comes to the travel, you know, it usually looks a little bit more thorough with the Instagram story updates or my event calendar, but I'm able to sneak in plenty of days at home, whether I'm gone just two days like this week or next week when I'm home for the whole week, which is lovely. All right. Getting that balance gives me a chance to sit down like I did today and do more of a batch posting or batch prepping where I get to record a couple podcast episodes so that I'm planned out (laughs) weeks, you know, a few weeks ahead. I'm sure similar to how you structure stuff. Same thing with blog post so that I can get, you know, through a few things so that I can round out November without worrying myself. And then I've done a pretty good job this year, this past year and a half, really having a more solid commitment to physical fitness and to just making sure that I'm eating really well, especially when I'm home so that any of those days that I might not eat as many vegetables as I know I should or get as many steps in or that yoga class, you know, when I'm traveling, I can balance that out really nicely with my time at home. And so that's really been a huge part of making sure that I stay grounded, that I'm able to maintain a travel schedule because I really love going out and visiting classrooms in different parts of the country or in geographies that are different than where I taught and connecting with folks in spaces where you know I get to see these wonderful patterns and similarities right throughout the country. But then I also get to see what people are excited about in one area or share something that no one's had a chance to dive into just yet. And so that for me has been really special. And one thing that, you know, helps along the way is that there's so many networks that I'm a part of. Uh, Apple Distinguished Educators is a great example. So even though, you know, I'm going all the way down to Arkansas for an event um, tomorrow, I'll have a chance to connect with some of my ADE friends who are local to there. Same thing goes when I fly up to upstate New York right before Thanksgiving to Nyscape and New York's, you know, ISTE affiliate. Um, I know some folks who were up there. Thanks to some of the networks that I'm a part of. So it really becomes a special thing of going to places, meeting new people, but also reconnecting with some folks who are also really excited about this work. For me, uh, locally, it's Q, uh, our local California ISTE affiliate, doing a lot of work Mm -hmm. with them. But then I like big things like ISTE, and I want to get out to FETC this year and branch out and see a bunch of friends from like my four o'clock faculty PLN and spend some quality one-on-one face-to-face time with them makes such a difference. And I don't know if you feel this way, but I often reflect and feel this way when I come home and experience um, these different times with these educators. I feel like they're extended family, like They get me and I get them and it's just a great place to be. Is it that way for you as well? Absolutely. And it's something where there's, you know, common passion, common interests. We, you know, are the people that we each go to when we have a question or we get excited about something, right? So I was really lucky to teach in a school where the folks that I worked with were just 
you know, equally passionate, even if they might not have gotten that thing that I was so excited about that I figured out to make the iPads do, (laughs) they would sit with me and listen when I got, you know, really excited about something. And it is funny because this past week, um, I ran into a teacher that I taught with for several years, but hadn't seen in several years at a conference down in Maryland. And it was just so lovely to catch up with her and, you know, fall back into that pattern of getting excited. And that was someone who I had a chance to teach just down the hall from, you know, for gosh, a couple years at least that we were in the same building together. But I feel that same way of falling right back into those patterns of getting excited and sharing things. And that happens when I'm traveling and I run into someone at a conference or I make time to grab coffee with someone to hear what they've been up to. So that's all all part of just the the wonderful you know, networks that I've been able to build. I'm sure, you know, as you said, you feel the same way when it comes to finding people in your community. And that could be a vibrant virtual community that are excited about things too. Right. And like you mentioned too, on top of that virtual community, it's really nice when you have an at-home community at your site. Uh, My story is very similar to yours. On site, when I go to a training and come back with all these ideas and want to try things out, I'm blessed that my department chairs let me put on like a mini training or share out. And uh, I do like little email blasts and in-house videos for Mm -hmm. our our staff on site uh, about how to use the new tech tools I've learned about. And so that really led me into this with podcasting. How did you get into podcasting? So podcasting has been something I've been thinking about for a while. I've been blogging at classtechtips.com, my website, since 2012. So somehow coming up on eight years this spring, which is hard to wrap my head around. But it's been a wonderful experience. I'm still blogging several times a week. You know, it's part of what I do is my kind of full-time independent gig right now and love that medium. But I am a huge podcast consumer. I listen to lots of podcasts. I find so much value from that medium. And it's been something I've thought about for a while. And then you know, I would finish up a presentation, happened to me in New Jersey, uh, maybe a month or two before I launched the podcast. And someone said to me, Monica, I love your blog. I wish you had a podcast so I could listen to it in the car though. Like this would be so much easier to keep up. And, you know, and I've heard that before from people and I just wasn't really sure what I wanted from the structure of the podcast. Typically when I have a project, I will think, think, think for a while. And then as soon as, you know, it's execution time, it's just rolling right through. And so I finally hit that point of, I've thought about this for a while and I think I figured out what I want. And so my podcast is under 20 minutes every week, so Tuesday mornings. Sometimes I'm reading a blog post aloud, so maybe a popular pod, um, blog post from a year or two ago, and I'll go in and I'll update some things or make some changes. Other times it's totally new content, and I have a transcript that kind of reads like a blog post almost, but it hasn't been featured on my site before. But my goal was really to stay in line with what I do typically on my blog which is try to provide background on something, steps to follow, but more importantly, make some connections that are actionable. And so each episode of my podcast ends with a let's make this easy. And here's, you know, four steps to put the big ideas um, into action. And so that's been really fun. I like the format. I was in North Dakota 
a couple of weeks ago, keynoting their ISTE affiliate, their state conference. And someone again came up after the session and said, oh, I listen to your podcast, you know, when I'm working out and I really love it. And it's those kind of things where I don't know if it's just because the format's different, but I don't always have the same sense or understanding if the podcast is resonating <laughs> the way that I felt with the blog. So it's been fun to hear people share their experience listening. And on Sunday of this week, so I'm you know, you know, sometimes we're recording things kind of off schedule like that, but just coming up in a few days for me here at least, I am doing my first interview podcast. And I was not sure if I wanted to pull that in as a regular consistent feature. So this one's more of a bonus episode with a author friend who has a great new book out that I'm excited to share in this format. So I interviewed him and We'll share that out this week for the first time. And depending on how that resonates, it's about twice the length of my normal episodes. Depending on how folks respond, I might pull a couple in in 2020. So maybe do one a quarter or one a month um, with the interview piece. But for now, you know, my goal of having some quick tips that are actionable that you can listen to in under 20 minutes is something that has felt good so far. I listened this week on my way to training and it was great. I loved how short and sweet and to the point it is. Um, and by the way, folks, you can find her blog on uh, classtechtips.com. And the one I listened to most recently is your five favorite YouTube channels for teachers. And you had some great ones in there. Is there one that you would maybe want to share a little bit about? Give us a little preview of that episode. It's episode yeah. 38. Absolutely. And thank you so much for listening. I appreciate that that feedback um, because that's really what I'm trying to get at, right? Make things concise and easy and actionable for everyone. And yeah, so the episode for the five favorite YouTube channels for teachers covers a bunch of them. One of my favorites is TED Ed, the explainer videos from the folks behind TED Talks. They're animated. They get straight to the point. They're kind of like a one-on-one where they show off the origin of something. And I have to tell you, the ones that I have watched just for my own personal benefit, I think about all the time. And so I shared one. I was added event in 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 Illinois um, earlier this year. I was in Indiana and Illinois. I don't mix them up, but I just couldn't remember which one it was. But it was the it was the Illinois event at WitCon earlier this summer. And I shared TED Talks and TED Ed in their session. I shared the YouTube channel. And with the group, I showed them one all about how self-driving cars work. I think about this all the time, <laughs> like just the way that it bounces light off. I'm like, how that, that works. And, you know, these really resonate with groups. And it's something that I often share when talking about reading strategies as well. So TED-Ed would be one that I just love. And I was excited to put it on my list of five favorites uh, for this past week's podcast episode. Let us know which other books you have. So I mentioned the one, which other ones can we find on Amazon? 
Yeah. So if you are on Amazon, um, there's two Monica Burns. I always like to give everyone a little bit of a warning. There's two Monicas, but um, mine you'll know right away because they're the education books <laughs> as opposed to the other, I'm sure, very nice woman's books. But my 40 ways to inject creativity into your classroom with Adobe Spark that I wrote with Ben Forda is one that we talked about a little bit about already. I have two books that I published with Corwin a couple years ago. One is on scannable tech. So deeper learning with QR codes and augmented reality. And the other is on formative tech. So using technology for formative assessment and then tasks before apps, which is all about designing rigorous learning activities in tech rich environments. I published that with ASCD and that's one that I had a chance to do some signings of this past week at their leadership conference down in Maryland. And they've been just so lovely to partner with. So Tasks Before Apps is one that I love sharing, and it's the topic that I most often do if I'm keynoting an event as well. Yeah, and you got some huge praise for that, too. I'm looking, and you have a shout-out from Eric Schinninger, (laughs) where he says, Monica is one of the leading authorities on effective use of educational technology. So I'm really glad we could have you on the show today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TNT EdTech Podcast. Please visit q.org and show our sponsor some love. And don't forget to check out the upcoming Spring Q Conference.